So today uh, we're continuing our series Plot Twist and we're picking it up where we left off last week in Matthew chapter 26, looking at everything uh, that went on in Jesus's life leading up to his crucifixion and his resurrection, really those key events that happened during the end of his life. Last week we looked at the Passover and this week we're looking at what happened after they took that Passover dinner. I want to ask you guys, have you ever had people, by show of hands, has anybody here ever had somebody let them down? Okay, pretty much all of us, right? Has anyone had somebody let them down when you feel like you needed them the most? Yeah. Have you ever had a hard time following through on something that you know you're supposed to do? What do you think? Okay, most of us. This is kind of what Jesus is going through and what we're looking at tonight. So after taking the Passover meal, and Jesus talked about how the Passover was pointing forward to him, we kind of went into more detail about that last week. After that, Jesus and his disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. We picked up the story in Matthew chapter 26, starting off in verse 36. Here's what it says. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Here's the overall big picture of what we're looking at tonight. Jesus willingly went to the cross for you. That's what we're looking for. In this little, little piece of a story in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus struggling. He's praying. He's praying, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus is willingly choose, choosing to be obedient to God, to go to the cross for you. The Bible says that Jesus was sorrowful. He was troubled. It said that just previously in that verse, it says that he became anguished and distressed. Now, Jesus knew that this was coming the whole time. We talked even in the past few weeks, Jesus said, I'm going to die. The Son of Man is going to be handed over to the enemy. He's going to die. So Jesus has seen this coming for some time, and yet Jesus is still stressed about it. Jesus is still anguished and distressed about what is going to happen here. And sometimes even though we know something is coming up, like we still feel stressed about it when the time comes, no matter how far in advance we know about it. In fact, we could say the more in advance we know about something, the more stressful that can be, right? Like if your teacher says you have this huge test coming up at the end of the semester, that's all you're going to think about for the end. Well, take that times a billion to the next level. Jesus knows that the end of his life is going to become the greatest challenge he has ever faced, the greatest challenge anybody has ever faced in all of human history. As fully divine, fully God, Jesus was able to be perfectly obedient to the Father. But being fully human at the same time, Jesus felt pain. Any pain that you felt in your life, any sorrow that you have felt in your life, Jesus felt that himself. He felt pain, grief, temptation. 
yet without sin. And so in his time of anguish, he asked his closest friends, Peter, James, and John, to be with him as he prays. He's saying, hey, I'm going through a really hard time right now. I just need you guys to be with me. And I think Jesus is actually setting a really good example for us right there, right? Because sometimes when we feel sorrowful, when we feel depressed, when we feel afraid, we do this thing called isolate, right? We do this thing where we retreat to our own little corner, but really it's good for us to try to get our closest friends around us to help us through those times to talk to somebody, right? And so that's a good model that Jesus gives for us here. But he asked them to be with him. And he goes and he prays and he says, Father, would you let this cup pass from me? If it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. A long time ago when I was a kid, my dad was going on this weird diet. I don't remember what it was, but he was drinking tomato juice. And tomato juice is really disgusting. Has anybody ever drank in tomato juice before? Okay, so a few of you guys. And he had this can of tomato juice that was maybe about that big or so. And he said, I'll give you 20 bucks if you drink this can of tomato juice. You just chug it. And so I said, okay. So I did. And I almost gagged. Oh, I did gag. And I almost threw up and it was really disgusting. But I got through it because I knew there was going to be a reward at the end. Jesus is talking about a cup here. It's a cup that he, in his own anguish and pain and sorrow, does not want to drink. But at the same time, he knows there is a reward coming at the end. Here's what it is. The cup is the wrath of God. What does that mean? Cups are used to describe different things in the Bible, one of them being the wrath of God. That means the punishment that you and me deserve for our sins. That is the wrath of God. And there's two ways that the wrath of God gets applied. Either the wrath of God goes on us in hell for eternity, or the wrath of God goes on Jesus in our place because we put our faith in him. Those are the two possibilities, the two choices that we have. And Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. Just earlier, we saw the Passover and he took the cup, right? And he said, this is my blood that is shed for you. So this cup that Jesus is talking about is the wrath of God, the punishment for sins, shedding of his blood that he had to suffer. And what we see Jesus doing here in the garden of Gethsemane is he's praying. He's stressed out about this thing that's coming up, but he's praying to God and he's saying, God, in the middle of my pain, in the middle of my sorrow, I still trust you and not my will, but your will be done. Jesus gives us an example of how to suffer well. Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages about Jesus says, You must have, talking to us, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Next point tonight is that Jesus gives us an example of submission. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's giving us an example. Let's go back really quick to that verse in Philippians chapter 2. This is what Jesus did. 
Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He gave up his divine privileges. Now, this is Jesus, God from all eternity, gave up his divine privileges, stepped down to take the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. And I'll be wondering, if Jesus is God, how can Jesus feel pain? How can Jesus need to learn and grow? How can Jesus fill in the blank, be tempted? Because Jesus humbled himself to become one of us. That's the answer. Jesus humbled himself to become one of us so that he could represent us and be the sacrifice for our sins, representing you on the cross, paying the punishment for everything that you deserved. Do you notice here how Jesus is putting himself in your place? That's what he came to do. God came to put himself in your place. He had doubts, he had temptation, he had pain, but he trusted God perfectly in the middle of all of it. And through your relationship with Jesus, you can have an attitude like Jesus does here in the garden where he submits to God's will even when it's hard. Because sometimes following God's will is going to be hard. It's going to be hard. But it's always right and it always has a reward in the end. Matthew 26, 40-44. Uh, it says, Then he returned to his disciples and found them asleep. Now what did Jesus ask for them to do? Did he say, you just chill here, go to sleep, and I'll be praying over here? What did he ask him? He said, be with me, right? I'm going through a hard time right now. Be with me. And he just kind of steps aside, just not that far away from them. They can probably stones throw away. They can maybe hear him even. And he goes back, and they're sleeping. And Jesus, I think he's even brokenhearted by this. Why are you sleeping? I asked you to be with me. Couldn't you, he said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give him temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. So Jesus finds them sleeping. Jesus says, pray so that you don't enter in temptation. Now let's remember, what did Jesus say at the Passover dinner? Just previously, just prior to this, Jesus said the time is coming where they will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. Who's the shepherd? Jesus. Jesus. Who's the sheep? His disciples. In this, in this particular context he was talking about. He said, all of you guys are going to leave me. And then Peter says, I'm not going to leave you then Jesus says, you're going to deny me three times, right? That's what we just looked at last week. But now Jesus is saying, you guys should pray so you don't enter temptation or testing. Jesus is talking about them praying, them being diligent to be faithful to him, to stick by his side. But I think that the disciples are so overwhelmed by the things that they're hearing that they're just checking out. You know, sometimes in life you get so overwhelmed or so stressed out about stuff. You have so many things to do that you just are like, I'm just going to do nothing. Can I get some head nods? Does that happen sometimes? Yes. Now, this is the same thing, but to like a really high level here. 
they are totally checking out because Jesus, who they've been following this whole time, their Lord, their Savior, he says, I'm going to die. Things are about to change. And I think they're so overwhelmed by all of this that they just check out. They're just like, I, I'm just going to go to sleep. But Jesus says, pray so that you don't enter into temptation. And I think sometimes in our relationship with God, like it can be easy for us to check out sometimes. And like, I think deep down in our spirit, that's not what we want. What we want deep down in our spirit is for everything to be okay. It's to make it through the trial, to make it through the temptation, to make it through the test. That's what our spirit wants. But Jesus said the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And sometimes our bodies just shut down on us. But in that time, Jesus tells us to pray, to spend time with God, to be in his presence. Jesus prays again, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drank it, your will be done. What's the cup? It's the wrath of God, right? He's saying, if your wrath cannot be taken away unless I do this, I'm going to do it. Your will be done. The only way that the wrath of God can be taken away from you is by Jesus going to the cross for you. That's the only way. And that's why Jesus did it. That was the joy that was set before him. That was the reward that was set before him. That's why he went through this thing. That's why he willingly did this for you. Because you are his reward. He wanted a relationship with you. But you can only have a relationship with God if your sin is paid for. And that's what Jesus came to do. It is not possible for salvation to come to us any other way than Jesus drinking the cup of the wrath of God. Matthew 26, 45-56. So we continue in the story here. Jesus prays a third time and then he comes back to his disciples and he says, go ahead and sleep, have your rest. But look, the time has come. The son of man, talking about himself, is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. And even as Jesus said this, Judas, one of the 12 disciples, arrived with a crowd of men armed with swords and clubs. They had been sent by the leading priests and elders of the people. The traitor, Judas, had given them a prearranged signal. You will know which one to arrest when I greet him with a kiss. So Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi, he exclaimed, and gave him the kiss. It was a common greeting in their culture for friends. Jesus said, My friend, go ahead and do what you have come for. I'm just going to pause right there real quick. I mean, look at the grace. Even when Judas is betraying Jesus, Jesus still calls him friend. I mean, Jesus is still giving Judas an opportunity to have his grace to be his friend, even, even as he's being betrayed. And yet Judas is still rejecting him, still doing this. Then the others grabbed Jesus and, re- and arrested him. But one of the men with Jesus pulled out his sword and struck the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. Put away your sword, Jesus told him. Those who use the sword will die by the sword. Don't you realize I could ask my father for thousands of angels to protect us and he would send them instantly? But if I did, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that describe what must happen now? Then Jesus said to the crowd, Am I some dangerous revolutionary that you come with swords and clubs to arrest me? 
Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was teaching you every day. But all this is happening to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded in scriptures. At that point, the disciples deserted him and fled. They all left him. Judas betrays Jesus. One of Jesus' closest friends, closest followers, betrays him with a kiss. And then, after that, the disciples immediately act, and, and there's probably like a little scuffle going on. One of them takes out a sword and cuts off somebody's ear. He just the whole Van Gogh thing on him, right? He cuts off his ear, and Jesus is like, don't do that. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. And then he turns to the chief, chief priests or the people that they sent, and he said, I've been here this whole time. I was teaching in the temple. You could have gotten me then. He's exposing them for their hypocrisy because they came to kidnap Jesus at nighttime because that was safer for them. They weren't actually bold enough to stand up to Jesus in public in front of everybody, so they did it in this sneaky way. So he exposes their hypocrisy, but Jesus said, you did it this way because this was foretold by the prophets long ago. Isaiah 53 he is wounded for our transgressions, chastised for iniquities, by his stripes we are healed. The Bible talks about Jesus being our sacrifice. So he's saying it happened this way because that is the way it was predicted. And then his disciples leave him. Why do you think they left him? That's kind of a rhetorical question, but I want you to think about it. Why did they leave him? I mean, they were with Jesus. This whole time, they sat around the campfire with Jesus. They traveled with Jesus. They made tents with Jesus. They saw Jesus preach tons and tons of sermons, perform tons and tons of miracles. And at the time when Jesus needed them most, they all fled. They all ran away from Jesus. Because it's easy to follow Jesus when it's convenient for us. But it's hard to follow Jesus when things get real sometimes, right? It's hard to follow Jesus when things get real. So they all fled and they all ran away from Jesus. But I want to pause right here and say, this is not what we see happen at the end of their life, though. There's something that happened in between here called the resurrection. Because here, before the resurrection, they flee, they run away, they deny Christ. But then later, after the resurrection, we know many of these disciples that is talking about right here, Jesus is 12, that fled, that ran away from him, that were betrayed, they died for their faith. They didn't run away later because they saw the risen Lord. And that gave them the faith to not flee and deny Christ, but to stay strong by his side. And sometimes in your life, when it's hard for you to be a Christian at school, hard to be a Christian with your friends, do you have the faith to trust in Jesus and say, I'm going to stay by your side because I've experienced who you are and I love you, God. His disciples flee. Jesus is alone with these people. They, they kidnap him. They take him. We're going to pick up that part of the story next week. But I want to end with this. I want to end with what Judas said. What did Judas say? Can we go back to that verse? Uh, Matthew 26, 45 through 56. Judas goes up to them and 
Let's go to the next slide right here. Here it is. Judas came straight to Jesus. Greetings, rabbi. Now that might sound kind of weird to you guys. Like, what's a rabbi? Why does he call him that? Rabbi means, can somebody help me out here? Teacher. Teacher, right? Here's the deal. Jesus is the teacher, but he's much more than that. What was Peter's confession? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. His disciples called him Kurios, Lord. Jesus is Lord. Judas called Jesus teacher, but he never called him Lord. Never called him Lord. He saw Jesus as a teacher. He perhaps believed some of the things that Jesus taught even, but at the end of the day, Judas never bowed to Jesus as his Lord. And that's why he betrayed Jesus. Because he was just betraying another teacher, another rabbi, in his point of view. But Jesus was Lord. And the question for you, is Jesus your Lord? Because if Jesus is a teacher to you, and that's it, Jesus should be a teacher to you, but not just that. But if that's just it for you, and this is just some kind of like good stuff that you hear on Wednesday nights sometimes, you believe some of it, you kind of believe some, not some of it, you know, it doesn't really matter for your everyday life when you step off the church campus, then Jesus isn't your Lord. Because if Jesus is your Lord, that means that you're submitting to him just as he submits to the Father. You are dedicating your life to following him. And it's such an amazing thing that we have the opportunity to do that, to live for Jesus. Romans 10.9 says, If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you're not just saved in that moment. The good news is you are saved in that moment, but it's not just that. You begin a lifetime faith commitment to walking with Jesus, this amazing relationship with God that you get to have for the rest of your life. And it's an incredible thing.